I'm Steve Fisher. If life goes as expected, we'd all lose our parents after they've lived a nice long life and have had the chance to see us in the prime of adulthood. Sadly, life doesn't always go as planned. Laura Carney's dad was killed by a distracted driver when she was just 25. Some years later, she discovered her dad's bucket list and took it on as her mission to complete it for him. I, I saw my destiny sitting before me. You know, it was like it was like a call, like a call to action. And and in life, you get these opportunities to answer calls, and either you do or you don't. And I mean, woe to you if you don't, because then you'll always wonder what if. And I think there was just something in my soul and my heart that knew that this was going to be a big part of my life. I needed to finish this thing. I needed to write a book about it. I needed to publish a book about it. She's here to talk about her father's list on Life Slices. We're going to start with a question that is easy or complex, depending on you and how you want to answer it. Who is Laura Carney? A writer. I'm a, I'm a writer. You're a writer. Well, I don't see you writing. You're talking now. Not constantly, oh. <laughs> but, it, but it is who I am. <laughs> so what inspired you to become a writer and assume you're an editor as well? I am. Um, I'm a magazine copy editor. That's how I make my bread and butter. I freelance at a variety of national magazines. I used to do it full time. And now I do, I think I have about like 11 different jobs. But I also write, and I have always been a magazine writer. And when I came across my father's bucket list, that was when the origin of my book started. That's that's when I started becoming a book author, too. We will get to that in one second. Let's lay a little groundwork here. And who was Michael J. Carney? A comedian. A full-time comedian? He wasn't a professional no, comedian. No, he, he was a part-time comedian. He, he I can hear him in my head right now. He's annoyed I didn't also call him a writer. <laughs> <laughs> he was also a writer. He was very funny. I have to go with comedian first because he, he did comedy acts in piano bars and he also sang and he also was a salesman. That was his main profession. He was a jack of all trades. He did a little bit of everything. How did you find your dad's bucket list? My brother found it. My brother had just moved into his first house that he had purchased and he found it in the move. And Stephen and I were going, we we're on our way to visit him to celebrate his new house. And he just asked me, you know, did you know about this? And he thought it was important. So he showed it to me. Let's also back up. And unfortunately, you lost your dad tragically at a pretty young age. What happened? When I was 25, my dad was 54. He was killed in a car crash with a distracted driver. It was a teenager who was making a phone call at a red light. And just as I say, all, all the evils of society can be blamed on cell phones and the internet. <laughs> He said the same thing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you tell us some of the things that were on your dad's bucket list? Yeah. And especially was, things that might have surprised you. They really ran the gamut of athletic to travel to just, just plain sweet and kind of whimsical. He wanted to run 10 miles straight. He wanted to swim the width of a river. He wanted to go skydiving at least once. He wanted to surf in the Pacific Ocean, go sailing by himself. He wanted to play golf in the 70s a few times, which I learned is is quite quite a uh, a dream. <laughs> I had to take poetic license with with some of how I how I did these. He wanted to beat a number 1 seed in a tennis tournament. And as far as travel goes, you know, New Orleans was number 1 of the places he wanted to visit, I think because he loved music so much. He also wanted to go to Vienna, the city of music, Berlin, London, Paris. 
San Diego, Los Angeles. When when I found the list, of course, I'm I'm 38 at that point. So I've already done some some of these things in my life just by accident. And I'd already been to Los Angeles and things like that. And also the fact that he wanted to give his children the best education, best example, and most love that he could give. That was, I think, what really inspired me to decide to check it off myself because I was sad that he hadn't checked that off. Like I wanted him to understand that he absolutely had been successful with that. What made you decide to, I mean, a lot of kids would find a a parent's bucket list and go, okay, this is cool. And that would be that. What made you decide to fulfill all those items on the list. The best way I can explain it is it was like this flashbulb moment where I I saw my destiny sitting before me. You know, it was like it was like a call, like a call to action and and in life you get these opportunities to answer calls and either you do or you don't. And I mean, woe to you if you don't because then you'll always wonder what if and I think there was just something in my soul and my heart that knew that this was going to be a big part of my life. I needed to finish this thing. I needed to write a book about it. I needed to publish a book about it. I needed to do it to honor him. So there was that It was kind of a fatalistic element to it. But also, I had been an advocate at that point for a couple of years, which really just meant speaking in high schools about distracted driving. My main contribution to that community was I used to like pitch articles to the Washington Post and help people get their stories out there, or I'd help people write their stories, or I would just donate money via marathon training. And I didn't feel like it was a very good fit for me as a writer, what I was doing, because I always sort of felt like this is such a big story. Like my dad as a person was so not only was he a larger than life person, but just in general, I didn't feel like I was able to get across in a two minute speech, all of who he was. So I wanted to turn it into a book, but I just kept thinking, what, man, what a bummer, you know, like, who's gonna buy that? Like, they're gonna feel like I'm just telling them this really sad story. And and I, I, his life hadn't been a sad story. His life had been a really happy story. And so I think that was the initial impetus was maybe this could be good activism. But then, of course, as I started, I say, of course, I didn't know this then. As I started going through the list and, and turning, this was becoming my life now and I had to make room for it, it started changing me. And it was really as much a gift to me as I had hoped it would be a gift to other people. And we're going to get into that shortly. Of the items on the list, which were the most difficult to complete because they took you out of your comfort zone? I think probably the tennis and golf items, just because he he wanted to be a number one seed in a tournament and he wanted to play golf in the 70s a few times. So those were very daunting and I had to find some way to do it that made sense and and could be viewed as accurate for me. Another one that I found challenging was own a large house in our own land. Because again, I took poetic license with that. We rent an apartment just outside of New York, which is a very expensive place to live. And we work in publishing. So the way we did that actually involved the pandemic in a way, which when the pandemic started, sort of changed the whole rule book of how everybody was living. And we didn't know when this thing was going to be over and what what I could do on the list because I was three years in at that point. So a couple of things that I did to satisfy the list during the pandemic were make money on the stock market because I could do that from home. Own my own tennis court, which now became a ping pong table because who knows if I'm going to ever leave my apartment again, you know? (laughs) And then we just, we couldn't travel anymore because of the lockdown. So we started going camping and my husband bought this tent. And as he was setting up this tent, it suddenly hit me. He, He mentioned it was an extra large tent. 
And it hit me like, oh, we own a large house, technically, because if you look in the dictionary, house is just shelter. And sometimes I would do things like that. Like I would double check the dictionary definition to make sure I was satisfying it. And it might not be what you would expect. It might not be what you would. And honestly, like that happened to me a lot. There were so many list items where I thought it was going to be one way and it turned out to be quite another. And I mean, I think it could even be argued that every list item was like that. So, I mean, even now, now I'm still, I think, in the process of finishing the most challenging one, even though I, I said it was done. I think it's done. But technically, my book isn't in bookstores until June 13th. So probably not until that day will I have checked off right and have a few novels published. So, I mean, even even that one is still teaching me. And that's been that's been the most difficult challenge of all, just because I think because it's the book I chose to write is about the list. My dad wrote a book as well. So that's why I'm considering it a few novels. My husband actually redesigned his book and put it on Amazon as a Christmas gift to me and surprised me. So so that's how we're, we're going to have a few out there. But yeah, I mean, I think up until June 13th, I'm still learning. Wait a second. So your husband puts his book on Amazon as my a dad's Christmas. book. Oh, your dad's book on on. Yeah. But you're you're going to have to go to Amazon and buy it. Well, That's yeah, not a gift. Yeah. yeah. No, we he he, he gave gave us copies for free too. Oh, okay, good, good. <laughs> just just wanted to make sure. And I was afraid you were going to say one of the items on the list was go to the moon, which no, would thank be goodness, a little difficult to complete. Thank goodness, he he wasn't that crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you took a very private journey and put this into a book. How difficult was that? What went through you as you were writing this? Most of the book is really fun. It really is an adventure that the reader is going on with me. So those parts are easy to write, except for you know, I'm a journalist and I have a background as a fact checker. So then there is always there is always my tendency to just get lost in the weeds with, with research. So... Sometimes I would do that to myself. So th that probably was the only hazard with writing about the more fun parts. Because I was just trying to write what parts of New Orleans would my dad have enjoyed. Things like that. But yeah, the the, the moments where I, I knew I had to revisit his funeral. I had to revisit the day he died. I had to revisit when I was diagnosed with depression as a kid and, and his involvement in that. I, I, I had to go back and and relive these experiences in my life that I hadn't found closure with with him. Mm -hmm. Because doing these list items and living out his dreams, there was just something about doing that that was healing those parts for me. Because I'm getting to go on this fun journey with his spirit now. So it's like I'm not that angsty kid anymore who's like, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> Instead, I'm like welcoming his advice. You know, I'm saying like, yeah, you know what you're doing, dad. Like, I totally trust you. <laughs> Which, I mean, how many parents would love for their kids to just say that at a certain age, right? And, you know, when he died, I was only 25. So some of that stuff hadn't totally been smoothed over yet. I think as people get to know their parents as adults, they, they develop more of a friendship with them. And, and I didn't, I didn't really have that experience. So doing the list sort of helped me to have that experience with him, even though it's just in spirit. Now that you've written the book and it's getting ready to be published as we record this, when the podcast drops, it will be out. And we'll give you a chance to tell people how to get it. But you're going to have to promote it and talk a lot about the story. Is this going to be a challenge? Is Are you going to be able to hold your emotions in check 
It has been. Yeah, it has been so far. I, I would never, ever, ever complain about it, though, because, you know, we've we've been very fortunate with the press that we've had so far. I mean, I was on NBC Nightly News. They came to my house. The Washington Post wrote this amazing article that went viral. I got to sing on NPR. <laughs> that should be on my list, right? Like That's sing right. on national public radio. Everything has felt like this incredible blessing. And I really do believe he's pulling strings to to make this easier for me. Just Just the way... My agent called it unprecedented for a new author, the way that people just took to this story. And when it first started, it's like, okay, well, now I have to go on the Tamron Hall show. And I just I just sort of have to do it. And there was no time to think about it. It, it. it happened two weeks after I finished writing the book and like three weeks after I finished writing the list. And I just had to just go into the right mode and do it. Luckily, as someone who's a journalist for 20 years, I had some training in that. And I'm used, I'm used to be on the other side, but I had some concept of how it goes. And I'd already done 15 podcasts for the list. I did a bunch of articles and interviews when I started the list. I worked for Good Housekeeping Magazine. They published a story about it. So I sort of had some idea about how this worked. I had no idea what the press machine is like when you're actually doing it every day. And it's, it's becoming like this frenzy. So that started happening. And then we started kind of pulling back and slowing down with it because we knew this thing was going to come out in June. And we didn't want it to like get too big too quickly. So I've been doing podcasts here and there and articles here and there. And, and it's, it's interesting. I, what I'm noticing is that when I spread them out further apart, that's when it hits me more. That's when I get more emotional. I have too much time to think about it. And then AARP came here last week and they were here for like eight hours. And that was really interesting because it's like, it's not an interview, it's a documentary, which means when you're sitting there, they're going to ask you the same questions over and over again because they want to get multiple takes of you saying it in different ways. And I think there was something about doing that that really, I was just was very emotionally drained by the end of the day because it's like, yeah, it's like anytime I become very cognizant of what I'm saying and almost like completely aware, yeah, it does. It does drain me. But at the same time, it's a really, really good way to be drained because I I made myself do the list and and write the book, not just for me, but because I sensed that that what I was experiencing was something lots of people experience, whether whether it's because of a distracted driver or some other kind of loss they've experienced at a young age. And I think right now, this moment in society, we we witness these kinds of losses all the time, every day that seem completely senseless. Mainly what I'm thinking about is issues with guns and kids with guns and things that are hard to explain to children. And, and if you're living in a, in a society where stuff's happening that's hard to explain to children, like think people need guides for how to how to survive that, emotionally speaking. Because I think in a way, especially with the pandemic too, we sort of start to numb ourselves after a while. And my my quest with doing this list and with uh, forcing myself to relive some of these experiences was to no longer be afraid of those emotions and and not to be afraid of my grief. And and in so doing, I found a way to reconnect with my dad. So whenever I say lost now, I don't even think about it. Like it doesn't feel like the right word to me because I have a very present everyday connection with him. Like his spirit and energy didn't go anywhere. Has his spirit read the book yet? Has he, yes. He, he, his spirit helped me write the book, I believe. Very good. Very <laughs> good. Some parts that are way too good that I, I don't think I could do by myself. <laughs> by the way, I just want you to know that the reason AARP spent so much time with you is because they were hoping that during that time you'd become a senior and want membership. 
Oh, well, they came two days too early because I turned 45 a couple days after they were here. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Bad timing on their part. Yeah, it was quite an induction for me. <laughs> you talked a little bit about this, but it, how did performing the tasks on the list help you process the grief or did it help to keep the grief alive longer? Oh, no, it didn't help it keep alive longer. I think when, when you're in a situation like I was where the person has died both suddenly and tragically, and, and maybe even violently, what you're dealing with is two different issues, right? Because you, you have the grief from the death, but you also have trauma, because it was a scary way that it happened, as opposed to someone dying peacefully in their sleep, which is what we all hope happens for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. So I was still so caught up in the trauma part of it for 10 years, I believe. I've never had this officially diagnosed, but I believe this is what happened. I was still so caught up in, in the PTSD response that I wasn't even getting to the grief. So the grief mm-hmm. was just sort of lying there dormant. It would peek through once in a while, and I would get really sad, like as you do, I think I would have just sort of been continuing to live this life where I wasn't fully alive, where I wasn't letting myself take risks, where I wasn't fully appreciating what it is to be alive, and instead thinking all the time about this horrible thing that happened and how I need to live a life that makes up for it somehow. Like I would work really hard. I would work around the clock hoping like somehow my status in the world was going to change how people saw me as a victim. That's the way I really looked at it. And Mm -hmm. When you're focused on how people see you and how you come across, that's just like an outward thing. You're not really getting into what's really going on inside. So by doing the list items, I'm, what I'm really doing is fear exposure. So it's like 54 times over six years, I'm forcing myself to do a scary thing that's kind of innocuous. Jumping out of an airplane, not the same thing as getting into a car crash, right. um, but still scary, still potentially life-threatening. And as I'm doing each of these things and succeeding, I'm sort of, it's like I'm building up this tolerance for it and letting go of a lot of my misconceptions about things. So I'm no longer thinking whatever I thought about my dad's death was 100% right. There's no other way to look at it. I'm just like expanding the way I look at life in general. And also I'm now forcing myself to develop a positive mindset because as you're approaching, let's say, talk with the president or correspond with the Pope. You don't have faith that this is going to work out somehow. You're kind of doing yourself in. You might as well believe, right? Because it's in your best interest to believe that this will happen. So I think really what the list required of me was just these certain life skills that you can't see this, but I'm like marking my hand on the table like notches on a timeline. (laughs) Every step along the way, I'm becoming more positive and more faith-driven and also more self-confident. And really, I think each of these things made it so that I could now face whatever feelings of sadness or grief were still there inside of me. And it's like once you're not scared of it, yeah, it's probably still going to be there. There's going to be moments in my life where I will still feel grief. Did I miss my dad on my birthday last week? Yes. One of his songs came on the radio that he used to sing to me, and that was a nice moment. But I don't look at that anymore as like, oh, what a coincidence. Oh, I'm so sad he's not here. Instead, I look at that as, oh, he made that happen. Mm. His spirit wanted to say hi at that very moment. There it is. And I feel comforted by it as opposed to sad. To what degree did finding the bucket list and reading it and then performing the items on it, to what degree do you feel that helped you understand your father better? 
Oh, completely. I think I completely misjudged him. It wasn't just the list that I found. Like as I as I went through this journey, I kept finding other notebooks of his that nobody knew existed and I'd probably had for 13 years and just never opened, never looked inside of them and it was like to-do lists that he made. And it would be things like paint the baby's nursery and then like figure out my religion. <laughs> Like, like these mundane tasks next to these like existential dilemmas, which is so like, so who he was. And then I'd find like an outline of his own book or his plans for getting published. And I always sort of thought of him as more of like an ineffectual dreamer. Like he would always be job to job as salesmen often are. And as a little kid growing up in suburban Delaware, I didn't understand that because I, I just knew adults to be teachers or bankers, like one job their whole life. And my dad's not that way. When I would get embarrassed of it. Now, in order to do this right and to finish it and have the time to write the book, I really did have to not have a full-time job. I had to freelance. I had to do lots of different jobs where I had more free time to write and do the list and the vacation time I needed to go on these trips. So it's like as I'm experiencing that, I'm recognizing, oh my God, I'm dad. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Like I've, the way I manage time now is so much the way he did. And, and I actually enjoy it. Like, like it's okay. It's not like, I don't have to be terrified of a life that has lots of different stuff going on in it. Like it's not a bad thing. So it really would be stuff like that. I think overall, I, I finally developed this understanding of the fact that he was this very creative person and he just so happened to be living in Delaware in the 1980s. Maybe not the best environment for someone who was like that. And it maybe wasn't nurturing everything he could do. But I feel very blessed because I'm a very creative person, but I'm in New York City in 2023. And I have the internet. There's just a lot more tools at my disposal to let myself be that person. And I think probably my biggest block before I started the list, it wasn't even my husband, but rather what I thought my husband and I were supposed to be as a married couple. And and I looked around at other people who were married and I thought, oh, okay, like I need to, as a woman, like I'm supposed to really just not care about my own goals at this to the same level now. I'm supposed mm-hmm. to really devote myself to my husband and this marriage I just started and whatever else comes with that. And think that's a that's a tricky line that a lot of women walk because they do sacrifice themselves to a great degree and and sometimes lose themselves a little bit and I just happen to be very lucky in that I have a husband who part of why he was attracted to me in the first place was my creativity and he just wanted to help me grow and become more of that person is he listening to this and thinking <laughs> wow what what did I do I I ruined what could have been a terrific wife could have been just doting on me <laughs> Left and right. <laughs> no, he, he, no, I'm exactly what he wanted. I'm Good. exactly what he wanted me to be. That's terrific. You mentioned a sibling, your brother. Is it just the one sibling? I do have one brother, um, and I have three stepbrothers. Oh, okay. You've got a big family. How do they all feel about the book? They're, they're very happy for me. They're proud of me. They're excited. They're, at first, I'm sure they, they like my mom and anyone else, were kind of like, oh, that's what she's doing? <laughs> like, that sounds like a lot. But uh, what ended up happening was they all helped me with, with one list item or another. And, and that really just blew me away. I have a very big family, not just stepbrothers, but cousins too, and aunts and uncles. And, and it's, uh, after a little bit, I got to a point where people's, people were just asking me, what can I do? How can I help? And it was really kind of emotional for me when that happened because – 
all I could compare it to was back when I was 25 and my father died and I didn't really know how to navigate that. And I kind of isolated myself. We had just, I just moved to New York. I had just met Stephen. Stephen met my dad one time. He died five days later. And I thought for sure Stephen was going to dump me. Like he was going to be like, this is too much. You know, you're, I'm 29. I don't want to deal with this. But he didn't. And he stuck by me and he knew it was something that was just part of my life, that it wasn't me. I, I just remember thinking when people were really going out of their way to help with the list, how remarkable it was that if you give someone something to do where they're celebrating someone's life, they're all about it. Like like it's it's something they really want to do. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to a tragic death, it's we don't know what to say to each other. It's like I if I hear about someone dying suddenly and tragically, I want to help and I'll I'll give my blessing. But in our society, I don't think even though I might mean well, I don't really know what else to do at that point. So it's sort of rewarding when you love someone who's gone through that, that you can do something to help them. And it's something fun, like go surfing. Surfing is good. You did mention earlier faith. And I I wonder, I, I'm not a faith-based person at all. And I wonder how dealing with a tragedy like this, such a sudden loss, how did that affect or either give you faith or or challenge your faith? I mean, I became a very pessimistic person, I think, after it happened. Though I wasn't aware of it, I was so young that it's like, if you're 25, I think it's hard to be aware that you've now become this. Just a fearful person deep down, wanting things to be in control, wanting things to not shock me too much. I think I would jump pretty easily if I was surprised. Yeah, I mean, but that's the thing that happens. If you go through a sudden change like that, part of how your your brain copes with it is just like no more. No more. Let's keep things as the same as possible. So I stayed in one career and one ladder and it stayed in New York and didn't make a lot of new friends and just didn't open up to people for a long time for some of the prime years of my life. I had my husband, of course, and I had my old friends, so that was good. But I really would just have work acquaintances. I wasn't investing in people. That was one of the things I started noticing early with the list was that I was starting to do that again. I was starting to open up. I was starting to be my authentic self because I didn't have to protect myself anymore. There were just, there were so many like miraculous moments that were happening with the list that I couldn't explain away. I, I couldn't, some of, I guess some of the examples I would give are when we went to check off a uh, talk with the president. I really wanted to climb Stone Mountain because I had these pictures of my mom and my dad standing on the top of Stone Mountain, like triumphant. Like, this is one place they actually went to. I have to do this. My husband was exhausted from the flight. They had a very early flight. He's like, I just want to go to the hotel. And I was so insistent. No, come on, come on. It's not going to be that hard. So we did it. And then it's like, because we climbed it so close to sunset, we didn't get to our hotel until like 11 o'clock at night. And it was kind of harrowing. We're driving through cornfields and seeing like Confederate flags left and right. We're in Plains, Georgia. And we finally like got to the hotel. Yeah, we were like, oh, this feels like a horror movie. We got to the hotel. And as we're standing there, this guy walks in and he's wearing a Jimmy Carter t-shirt. And he's really like boisterous and talking a lot to the front hotel desk. And I said, hey, where'd you get that shirt? I want to get one because we had just been to the Carter Center that day. And he told me he got at the Carter Center. Somehow we struck up a conversation. Pretty soon we've been talking to him for three hours in the parking lot about Jimmy Carter, which for me, I was only able to do because I've been binging on Jimmy Carter documentaries for a whole two weeks. <laughs> this guy could do it because he was his biographer, it turned out. But he seemed like a normal person. I thought he would seem like fancier or something. And 
he just kept saying, oh, I've written a few books about him and met George H.W. Bush too and met Bill Clinton. And I thought, okay, either this guy's a really great liar or he's crazy. I got back to my hotel room and Googled him and like there he was with each of these people and he truly had written these books. And that meeting ended up making it so that by the time we did get to the church, the Sunday school, Jimmy Carter did have a few words with me. And he doesn't do that. He's, he's, he's on hospice now. He doesn't do the church right. anymore. But when he did, he would pose for pictures with people, but he wasn't having conversations. So in order to check off talk with the president, he had to exchange a few sentences with me. And I don't know that that would have happened if we hadn't met Art Milnes, his biographer, at that very moment. And and if I hadn't been prepared, if I hadn't been researching him enough to make it seem like he was my hero too. And just there are so many things like that. When I wanted to check off own a black tux, I looked for weeks online for a tuxedo that wouldn't look ridiculous because it's I'm a woman wearing it. One day I walk out of my apartment and there it is right in the boutique below my apartment, a women's tuxedo. And I walk in and I'm like, is that a women's tuxedo? And she said, it is. And I said, what size is it? And they only had one left and it was in my size. This is starting to sound very much like your dad is orchestrating this. Well, yeah. And I mean, and, and the, probably the craziest thing that happened was when I checked off surf in the Pacific Ocean, one of the ways I prepared, we took lessons here in New Jersey in Ocean City, which is nothing like Venice Beach. My brothers growing up used to love surfing movies and they would watch Point Break. So I had never seen it because I was like, they quote it all the time. I want nothing to do with this movie. So my husband's like, you have to watch it. So we watched it. And then when we went out to California that winter, because that's when the waves get the biggest there, that's when I wanted to do it. I finally was successful. It took me maybe, I think, 30 tries in total to get my feet on a surfboard. (laughs) But I finally did it. That night, we decided to go to a vegan restaurant to celebrate because my husband is vegan. I am now too. I wasn't at the time. And who walked in but Keanu Reeves? Wow. Who's in who start, the star of Point Break? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and vegan. <laughs> like, why did we choose that exact restaurant that night? It's like little things like that would happen to a point where I would just expect them. And I would know this is like, then the next day we went to the Rose Bowl, which was also a list item. And I prayed that the final score would be my dad's age when he died. And there's no way the Rose Bowl was going to be a final score of 54. It just had never happened in history. But I don't know enough about football to to understand that. And next thing we know, I'm not saying I made this happen, but it went into overtime and then it went into double overtime. And then I had completely forgotten about it. I was just so happy that Georgia had won. And then I look up at the scoreboard and it's 54. I mean, I didn't, I didn't make it happen. I'm not saying that. I don't have that power. Yeah. But it, it, the way you pray for things and the way you think about things, certainly I have experienced, has, has a dramatic impact on what you're experiencing in your life. So I, I choose to believe there's a greater power. So now this whole incident has also, I mean, your father's passing, it has made you somewhat of an activist. Is that correct? I think now I'm more of an activist for intentional living. Really, it started out being safe driving, and I still want that. But at somewhere along the way, I think because I was approaching it in this very unique way, because doing this list meant I'm kind of asking for a lot of understanding for my loved ones. And I'm now becoming this very, I don't know, almost like, I don't want to say I became an outcast of society because I didn't. It's not that bad. <laughs> But I did become like like an artist living up in a garret or something. I just became like someone who is living by her own rules. So it's like, how can a person who's doing that 
now be someone who's preaching law and order all the time. It's like it just didn't it didn't mesh anymore for me. And also, I'm no longer sad. I can't stand there and tell you a sad story about my dad because I don't feel that way anymore. I feel very energized by my his presence in my life. So I think what I really ended up becoming as far as my activism is I have a belief that when people make the choice to value their lives and their time and and choose to go on adventures just because they're fun and and choose to what some people call build their life resume as opposed to just their career, they are going to be more mindful anyway. They're going to be safer in the way they do things because they know what's at stake. Like, I don't want to lose my life in this car crash. Maybe I'm not going to use my – do you know what I mean? Like, it's like a positive reinforcement. So that's Mm -hmm. sort of what I do now. When they make the inevitable movie of of the book (laughs) – Who's going to play you? Oh, I have so many choices. <laughs> Who would be your number one choice? Oh, gosh. I really vacillate. I think Elizabeth Olsen's really great. Oh, um, good choice. I, th- I think Brie Larson's incredible. Who else? Who else? I've kind of been getting into Lily James recently who does a lot of British shows. She's pretty, she's very emotive. And I've been told I'm very emotional. So that probably would work. <laughs> all, all good choices. Has anybody come knocking yet about about the film rights? Oh, yes. That's why I feel like I shouldn't talk about it. <laughs> oh, okay. All We've right. had so meetings. We, yeah, we, we're still we, have we're still having meetings. Where can people buy the book? Uh, you should be able to get it at your local bookstore. We're, we're going for indie bookstores, but also Barnes & Noble. If you have Books of Million, Second and Charles, all those places. What's really exciting is it's going to be in Target. Is there any question that you would like to answer that I haven't asked? What's on your bucket list? I don't have one. You know, I was thinking of that. I don't like leaving my house. (laughs) Well, Laura, thank you so much. This is fascinating. I, I urge everybody to get out and write your own bucket list so that you have something for your kids to learn more about you by. And much success with the book. Thank you. I really have loved talking to you. My thanks to Laura Carney for sharing her story on Life's License. What began as a tragic loss became a new beginning for Laura and a lesson to the rest of us for how to face our fears. Not to mention a reminder for us to leave something behind to remember us by. If you liked this program, please like Life Slices on social media and subscribe wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesley and Studios.